0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency in 2017. I'm Freddie Gray and I'm deputy editor of The Spectator. I'm joined today by Michael Brendan Doherty, who is a writer at the National Review, and we're going to be talking about the escalating war of words between Trump and Kim Jong-un. So, Michael, the escalating war of words between Trump and north korea seems to only get more and more dramatic and terrifying how scared do you think we should be i don't
1: think we should be scared yet of war between north korea and the united states for the simple reason uh and this may sound incredibly basic and naive in a sense is that neither country wants a war Mm. uh both countries understand How catastrophic a war on the Korean Peninsula would be, how quickly it could get out of control, and how quickly it could lead to the use of nuclear weapons. And none of the U.S. allies in the region, like South Korea or Japan, would be keen on this. And the U.S. would want to avoid it as well because, uh, you know, I some friends in the military tell me that when the U.S. does war games of war in North Korea, you know, the simulations. You know, run a few weeks, and the in the simulations, American troops are marching north through the North Koreans, and then they just end because the the U.S. military has no idea what China would do or what Russia would do. Uh, I mean, uh, Russia has a major port, Vladivostok, that is within the region that North Korea is in. So it's it's um, it would be so perilous that I think both countries will stick to saying insane things. Uh, North Korea's leaders have a history of these insane threats. Mm. What's very new is the United States returning in kind.
0: Yes. Well, Rex Tillerson was talking about that yesterday and and suggesting that what Trump's doing is actually very intelligent because he's using the language that someone like Kim Jong-un would understand. He understands Trump if Trump talks in those terms to him.
1: I think that that is possibly correct the the problem with it is that North Korea's history of kind of brinksmanship with the US has revealed over the decades a kind of rational pattern of escalating threats and then getting what they want either humanitarian aid or the lifting of some sanction or getting South Korea to elect a more liberal party that tries a policy of sunshine mm. towards the north uh, so in a sense I don't know uh, I don't know if Kim jong-un is is really receiving a new message. Uh, I think what would change the dynamic uh, in a big way would be more u.s military material coming into the region, um, you know more ships, more troops that would that would be a much more frightening signal I think to un and I think it'd be a more frightening um experience for the rest of the world
0: yeah it's also we talked about this on the podcast on Wednesday on the main podcast on Wednesday but it's also Trump sort of making it clear that he doesn't regard UN sanctions as terribly important and or that he doesn't really trust in them because he he doesn't believe that China's going to stick clearly doesn't believe that China's going to stick to its its pledge to impose sanctions on North Korea so now he's just ratcheted up the rhetoric just after they've agreed to at the UN is that a fair assessment
1: that's fair it's very Trump is in a very difficult position in a way he's expressed views on North Korea going back even to 1999 saying that the US policy was failing and he was correct then to criticize Bill Clinton saying that you know Bill Clinton's uh, you know supposed diplomatic triumph of getting North Korea to agree to give up its chase for nuclear weapons mm. was likely a farce I mean he was proved right then yes. And in a sense, he said – he he hinted in the 1990s that it would be better to attack North Korea now before they get the weapons than after. Mm. Well, now he's become president well after that point, and this is still a very Nettleson problem for him uh, and one that our South Korean allies don't
0: seem to have a good grip on either at this point. Yes. And how much of it do you think is actually coming from Trump himself and how much of it is from the, the so-called grown-ups in the administration, the, the generals in particular?
1: Uh, the generals are divided. It is this, The new change in rhetoric is almost entirely Trump. I mean, and I think everyone suspects that and it's been confirmed in the reporting saying that, you know, Trump kind of took everyone by surprise mm. doing this. And from what we can see... Although Americans don't support uh, the U.S. taking a first strike against North Korea, uh, you know, polling seems to indicate that Republicans are with Trump on this rhetoric, mm. and that if the North did do something provocative, attack South Korea, or, you know, sent a missile over the, the sea into Japan, that, you know, he, Donald Trump would have the support of the public for responding with a a military strike.
0: Yes, because that's something that I think often messages get a bit confused here about what Trump's base want. I think we sort of had an impression that Trump's base are less interventionist, and therefore we sort of assumed that they would be not very keen on this ratcheting up of the rhetoric against North Korea. But actually, I think perhaps American public have been fed, or certainly Trump voters have been fed up of the pointless wars in the Middle East, but actually they do have an appetite for conflict in North Korea if if they think that it's in the American national interest.
1: Right. I mean there is sort of an unreality about this in the sense that it does seem like Trump's base doesn't have a very clear idea of how dire war in North Korea would be yeah. and how it would be unsatisfying in a way that that makes Iraq look like, you know, a summer holiday. Yes. You know, but you do see division in the administration for instance, you know, the Trump administration is also going over plans In Afghanistan with some generals and Trump himself wondering if the United States has to, again, as Obama did, increase troop levels in Afghanistan. Mm. And, you know, people like Attorney General uh, Jeff Sessions have said, you you know, argued in meetings, was this why we were elected? Yes. And the answer seems to be no. So Trump seems to be in, in this place where maybe he's very comfortable in the sense of the 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 dynamics on the ground aren't changing but he can juice his popularity get attention by matching and outdoing one of the most insane uh, rhetoricians
0: in the world stage himself yes so yeah is it perhaps part of the problem of having so many generals in such key positions or three generals in such key positions in the white house is that Military men tend to think of military solutions. That is one of the problems,
1: and it is interesting to see what a contrast Rex Tillerson is at the State Department, where, Mm. you know, Rex Tillerson's statements on the North Korean conflict are almost more peace-seeking than any State Department's comments in the past three presidential administrations. Uh, So there's, there's kind of... Conflict and and uh, and discord in this administration over North Korea, or at best, you could say that you know Donald Trump is playing the bad cop, and Rex Tillerson is is trying to say you're not our enemy. Yes, uh, which which is quite confusing to most Americans who hear
0: it. Well, and then I mean Sebastian Gorka, who's who you know is a, quite a prominent spokesman for the Trump administration on TV, said that Rex Tillerson could not pronounce on military matters; as that was down for Mattis, which is. Quite a bold thing to say about the Secretary of State.
1: Yes, there is. There's a lot of rumors coming out of Washington now, which, as you've experienced, and your listeners have heard on this podcast several times, you know, that Rex Tillerson is now out of favor, you know, and some people come, go out of favor, like Steve Bannon, then come back into it. Some people go out of favor with Trump and then never seem to come back and eventually are dismissed. Yes. So... Right now, Rex Tillerson seems to be out of favour. He's certainly
0: out of step. Is there, I, I've got a sort of, well, apart from Tillerson, obviously, I've got a sort of pet theory that Bannon and H.R. McMaster, while they probably disagree quite a lot on the Middle East, their views might align quite nicely on, on North Korea. So it might be one of the reasons we're seeing all this aggression is that it's one of the things that the two of the factions in the White House can agree in.
1: That may be right, but it really it really is incumbent on this administration to if they're heating up the rhetoric this much and you know Donald Trump is citing fire and fury he's saying that our military plans are locked and loaded mm. really the the administration has to come out and say what kind of end game they'd like to see would they like to see just new leadership in the North Korean regime mm. come to power would they like to see a complete regime change you know do they expect ex- China and Russia to uh, accept the United States may commit terrible war uh, near their border and then potentially um, have an ally that brushes up against their borders, removing this buffer state that keeps the United States away from some serious population centers in China and a major Russian military asset uh, facing the Pacific. Yes. What's the answer there? What- I don't think there? I don't think there is an answer yet. I, I, I don't think... I, I, the Trump administration did get a diplomatic coup by having China agree to renewed sanctions on North Korea. That is very atypical of China's history, which normally seeks to protect North Korea from this these kind of UN sanctions. Um, so job well done. It may also be because... In a sense, China no longer has to act as North Korea's nuclear umbrella. Mm. Uh, North North Korea can do that itself. And so China can, in a way, curry favor with the West by, um, by not defending North Korea in the U.N. Security Council. Yes. The being that North Korea now can defend itself. China now doesn't have to play as aggressive
0: a role diplomatically on its behalf. So in a sense, like a lot of Trumpist moves, there could be intelligent thinking behind it. We just don't know.
1: Right. We don't we don't know. Uh, Right now, I think I mean, one is tempted to think that this is just a kind of emotionally satisfying thing for Trump to do. Mm. And listen, I think there is an intelligence to it in the sense of there is a group of Americans very likely to be Trump supporters Who find this absurd pipsqueak in Pyongyang offensive? Who find, you know, in a sense, find that there's a cost to America's honor and prestige in the world for um, this little backward country, what Christopher Hitchens called a country of racist dwarves, (laughs) to to insult the United States and to threaten guam with you know nuclear annihilation mm. there are people who want to see someone slap them down and put them in their place uh which should be last place yes so there, th- there is this this satisfaction people take in what trump is saying um and i think for now that's that's the level on which we can analyze this it still seems very unlikely that people would want to go to war i mean And if war seemed more likely, you know, the press would very quickly inform Americans that it may mean losing 50,000 American troops within hours. It may mean millions of people dying in Tokyo or Seoul Mm. within the 24 hours, uh, you know, if chemical weapons and and other nasty uh, weapons are deployed by the North Koreans. yeah, Uh, The United States and South Korea would win such a war, but at at a human cost that's actually kind of horrible to contemplate. Yeah.
0: Could it be that America and and Americans and and the West more broadly needs to have an existential threat and Islam just hasn't quite been cutting it recently?
1: You know, I think that is true, although I do think that uh, most Americans have settled on Russia as that threat. Yeah. And North Korea is treated more as uh, a crisis that could blow up in our face as sort of a, you know, Russia is treated as the menacing threat, as this kind of Putin, as this, I think his reputation is sometimes inflated in America, that Putin is this, you know, almost uh, continent bestriding foe hmm. who's feeding an alternative world order. Whereas North Korea is, um, you know, this mad dictatorship uh, of, a, of a relatively small country yeah. um, that the United States could just blunder into.
0: But to a certain extent, both Russia and North Korea are, are distractions, really, from the, the main huge rival that is China.
1: That's right. I mean, long term, you know, but still Americans feel that uh, and, and, and successive administrations feel that China's rise can be managed, mm. and that at least for now, you know, China is, is um, a very serious economic power and potential rival, uh, but it's not yet really a, a military rival. It, it obviously has nuclear missiles that and intercontinental ballistic missiles that could um, destroy the United States, but its naval power, it, uh, and its men under arms, its equipment is still behind, uh, where the United States is. Uh, that will not be the case a few decades from now. Uh, if China continues on its upward ascent, but, um, you know, there, there's going to be a long-term debate about, uh, whether how the U S should look at, uh, China and Russia, should it ally with Russia as a kind of Western alliance to tame China's rise Mm. in the long term? Or should it welcome China's rise as a potential threat to its traditional foe, Russia? Yeah, you know, Russia's surrounded by, you know, Turkey, an American ally with uh, with uh, a huge number of men under arms. China on the other side, and then just beyond Poland, Germany, and and, and the rest of NATO. Um, so in a sense, I. It does seem that American policy is drifting towards the idea of, well, Russia is very well contained. Mm. It's easy to keep containing it for the long run. We'll just focus on them as the foe. yeah, And then manage China, uh, China's rise economically uh, with our uh, Southeast Asian partners and with South Korea and Japan as, as diplomatic allies.
0: I mean, uh, sort of at a deeper level, perhaps the tectonic plates of American strategy have shifted. You know, we had the Obama-Asian pivot shifted towards a eastern facing gaze isn't it
1: that's what's been talked about for for years but you know the united states still somehow ends up obsessed with countries like libya and syria yeah. <laughs> when it comes to military action or you know helping the saudi arabia in its rivalry with iran yeah so every president and and many presidential aspirants talk about how america's future should be in these, uh, incredibly lucrative trading relationships with a rising Asia. Mm. But on the day-to-day level, they seem to get drawn back into, um, the intrigues, uh, that are happening, uh, emanating from palaces in Riyadh and across the Gulf States. yeah. Uh, yeah. so, um, that's, that's sort of there's a high-minded uh, ideal of American policy that it, that it'll be about TPP, managing China's rise and trading across all across yes. uh, Asia, and then it is, it ends up being.
0: Well, so what? So so while the think tanks are talking about that, everyone goes sucked back into the Middle East, right? Yeah, and and and
1: their passions are hot. They are, are hot in the Middle East. Uh, yeah,
0: you know, America really has
1: put all of its chips on uh sunni powers and uh sunni movements and and half of them have blown up in america's face so yeah there seems to be no uh, each new strategy in the middle east leads to the
0: next disaster in the middle east yeah that's that's america's policy history there yeah well on that note i think we'll end it and uh, michael i hope we'll get you in again before the nuclear apocalypse Thank you. that'd be lovely for you. <laughs> all right Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast anytime on iTunes. So please do and have a very nice weekend.